Father, thank you for who you are. God of infinite compassion, grace, and justice. A God that is so incredibly beautiful. Father, we pray that you touch our hearts through your word in a way that would enlarge our faith, our trust in you today. Father, we long to have a rock-solid trust in who you are. And we pray that you do this through the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Sixteen hundred years apart, two men were prisoners. It was not your ordinary type of prison that either of them were in. The first, who was a prisoner in the first century, was a prisoner on an island. The second was a prisoner in his own house. Both of them prisoners for the rest of their lives. And both of their crimes, I believe, have some interesting similarities. The first of these we'll go to is actually the second of them. And he was in the 16th and 17th century. His name was Galileo. What was Galileo's crime? Well, Galileo had gotten a hold of something that a guy by the name of Nicholas Copernican had put together about our universe. It was kind of a bold thing because it overthrew what Aristotle had said about how our universe operated. You know, in the time of Aristotle, there were differing views and Aristotle kind of won out because he said, look, here's the thing. If you were to take a a ball, I don't have a ball here, but if you were to take a ball and you, you tossed it up in the air, it would come straight back down. If if our earth were a sphere and it were spinning, the ball could not possibly just come straight back down into your hand. And besides, there would be some great wind that would be constantly uh, coming on us. Do you feel wind when you walk outside all of the time? In Templeton, we do a lot of the time, but... And besides that, you see that the sun moves through the sky during the day. It, it clearly, it, it comes up in the east and it goes down in the west. Clearly, it's the sun that's moving. And at night, we look up and we see the stars and clearly the stars are the ones that are moving around. But there was a little problem with this theory. And that was that things like Mars, Mars, this this planet. Planets were the ones that caused problems because Mars would, would each night be a little bit further in the night sky and it made sense that it was orbiting around planet Earth, but then all of a sudden Mars would go back and retrograde a little bit. And so this theory, it, it was challenging uh, observations of astronomy. What did our Earth really look like? And so as Copernicus looked at this, he began to say there's something different going on here. I believe that actually uh, our earth is not the center of our solar system, that that the sun is actually not revolving around the earth, that that in actuality the earth is spinning on its axis. It's a a sphere that is a, a globe that is spinning around on its axis, and it is actually in orbit around the sun. This was groundbreaking. Uh, it, it changed modern history. Uh, it changed, it was uh, prompted really the scientific revolution. But nothing really happened with just what, Nicol- uh, what Copernican had done. Um, another person picked it up 
by the name of Galileo. And Galileo, through his observations, there was also another guy by the name of Kepler, uh, but Galileo and Kepler, as they picked up the observations that Copernican had put together, they began to say, you know what? There's got to be something to this. And as telescopes were developed that enabled them to better see what was going on out there, they said, no, you know what we think is actually happening is that there is a massive ball of fire that the earth is in orbit around. And we talked in the past two messages that I've given about the incredible reality of what takes place day in and day out, the endurance event that you go on. Are you tired from the past seven days? Traveling at 66,000 miles per hour around the sun day in and day out? Traveling through the Milky Way galaxy at some 500,000 miles per hour, I believe it was. You know, if you missed uh, where we talked about that, you can look on our YouTube channel. All the, the messages are recorded there. But you know, this simple idea that is common sense to us today, well, at least most of us, there may be some flat earthers here among us, but um, most of us probably assume that this is the reality of how uh, the solar system looks As Galileo began to teach this, he began to write about this, it got popularity where it hadn't with Copernican. And it began to get the attention, and eventually it got the attention of the people that you didn't want to get the attention of in the 16th and 17th century. That was the church. And the church said, no, that's not how it works. That's not what it looks like. The sun is not in the center. We are the important ones. We are in the center. It's about us as planet Earth. That is what the Bible, they thought, it really doesn't at all, tells us. And so they put Galileo on trial in 1616. And at the end of that trial, my understanding is that that he renounced his teaching about the solar system. But they say as he walked out that he muttered under his breath, but it moves. (laughs) Planet Earth is moving, Galileo said. And so he continued to write about it. And so in 1633, the church said, we're calling you in for another trial before the Inquisition because you continue to teach this. And he said, well, I'm only continuing to teach it in order for people to discuss and talk about this. I don't really believe it, and I'm not really promoting it as reality. They didn't buy that, and they sentenced him to house arrest for the rest of his life for saying that the sun is in the middle of the solar system, that we are orbiting around the sun. The second man who we talked about in the first century, was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. In Revelation chapter 1, you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. Pull out the pew Bible in front of you. Revelation chapter 1, it starts off in verse 1 telling us that Revelation is the revelation of... It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is all about. And then he goes on to say, this is why I'm in prison here on the island of Patmos. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why does he say that he's on the island of Patmos? He's in prison for the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
He's been sharing about the reality of what the Bible says. He's been sharing about the reality of what Jesus has done, the testimony of Jesus' life and how Jesus has lived. And because of that, he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. You see what, what John was trying to do. Do you catch it? John was trying to put the sun back where he belonged. He was trying to reveal who Jesus was. He was trying to help people realize the incredible reality that it's not about us, but it's about an amazing Savior who will do everything possible to save us. And for that, he was thrown to the island of Patmos. Well, we find in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, that there's going to be a group of people in the end, who are experiencing something similar to what John was. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. There's this great controversy going on between Satan and between Jesus. And, and Satan is represented as a dragon. And as he goes to make war with God's people in the end, notice what he's upset at and who he's upset at. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the what? have the testimony of Jesus. They're going to be experiencing persecution for the same exact thing that John was, a revelation of Jesus, putting the son back where he belongs, helping people to see that it is all about Jesus. So we follow on and we get to our verse that we've been looking at here. You know, in Revelation, uh, scholars, as they look at Revelation, they say it's like a chiasm in Revelation, You don't have to get into the details of what that means, but basically it means that there are parallel structures in Revelation that that lead up to a pinnacle. And the pinnacle of a chiasm is the apex, the climax, the point that, that is what Revelation is getting at. And that is right in the middle of Revelation, Revelation chapters 12 through 14. That's the, the apex, the pinnacle, the climax of Revelation. That's what it's all about. And here you find in the midst of this, God's people are highlighted, but the apex of the apex, as, as, it, as it highlights this controversy, after this it'll tell us that there's a sea beast that's called up by the dragon. Then there's a land beast that's called up. And then there's the mark of the beast that's given. And then there's 144,000 described. And then there's this last day message that's given. The three angels' messages, we call it, that are given to, to the entire world, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, to prepare them for this final crisis. And at the end of the third angel's message, the very climax of this final message to the world, the most important verse in all of Revelation, it's arguable, verse 12. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's like in Revelation that you've been climbing up and up and up. And when you get to the pinnacle, you find that that this is what it's all about. And John says twice here, here, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. He's wanting to get our attention. And we've looked at this patience, this endurance. We've looked at the commandments of God. And now we're going to look at the faith of Jesus. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? The faith of Jesus. We all know what the faith of Jesus is. We're all Christians, of course. And if you're not, still, you're welcome to be here. We're glad that you're, you're a part of this today. But that sounds like something that's very understandable in a church, doesn't it? 
Well, let's talk about faith. Uh, but first, you know, one of the pioneers of the Adventist church, Ellen White, she wrote this about this particular verse. And I think it's, it's key for us to, to grapple with this ourselves. It says, the faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it. We must live it. We must pray it and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their what? This is going to change your homes. This is going to change your, your most intimate relationships if you really grasp what is involved in the faith of Jesus. So maybe we need to take a, a little bit deeper dive into what is this faith of Jesus? What is it all about? So let's look at faith. What is faith? What is faith? Any answers? Anything that you put in particular? Usually... The verse that we think of first is Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. It's one of the best definitions in the Bible of faith, right? That it's, it's the assurance that, uh, of the things that we are hoping about. And it's the conviction of things that we, we can't even see. It, it's got a, a future aspect to it. It's got a, an evidence basis that is not based upon what we see. So that's, that's an idea of what faith is. Now, let's keep going here and we'll look at what does faith do? So we know that faith is, is this assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. But, but what does faith do? Now check this out. This is it's an astounding verse because really, in order to get what faith is all about, I would recommend that we just read through the entire book of Romans because it's incredible. It's beautiful. It's it's. Paul's magnum opus about faith and the gospel. We don't have time to do that. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that right now. But let's just look at one verse. Uh, I encourage you later on, great verses to look at would be uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But we're just going to look at one verse right now. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. Watch this. But to him who does not what? Him who does not work. Now, now here's what, what Paul has been building up to. He's, he's talked about in chapter 1 that, that the Gentiles, 1 and 2, that the Gentiles are under condemnation. Then he's talked about after that, that the, in chapter 2 that the Jews, too, are, are under condemnation. And then in chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no hope for any of us. Well, except for the, then he goes on to give hope. And that he points out that there has been a righteousness that's been given apart from the law. But to him who does not work, but, what is that next word? Believes. What's another word for to believe? Some versions will put to trust. To him who believes, to him who trusts. On him. There's a direction to this trust, a direction to this belief. It's towards God himself. On him who justifies the who? The ungodly. Friends, this is good news this morning. Because if you feel like you are not like God this morning then there is justification available for you from the one who justifies the ungodly, not based upon your works, but based upon belief and trust in him. I heard one amen to that. You don't have to say amen. You can say hallelujah. That's another good one to say. Thank you, Jesus. It's Thanksgiving time. No? All right. So, To me, that's incredible, right? To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Now notice, his faith. Faith, the action of that is belief. 
belief or trust. His faith is accounted for righteousness. You're seen as righteousness when you believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, ah, okay, that sounds great, that's good and all, but that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Well, let's keep going. What is the absence of faith? When there is no faith, when we're lacking in faith, you could say that that would result in unbelief, right? But here we go on and we find in Romans 14, verse 23. Now, this is talking about in the context of feast days and, and what a person chooses to eat with those days. It says, whatever is not from what? Whatever is not from faith is, whatever is not from faith is sin. So here is a definition for sin. We also know that sin is the transgression of the law, but here you have a definition of faith that that whatever doesn't come from faith, whatever is not based upon a trust and belief in God is actually sin. So this makes a lot of sense when you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Before we get to what the serpent said there, you remember the first thing that the serpent said to Eve? He said, did God really tell you not to eat of all the trees of the garden? Did God say that? No, he's wanting to plant doubts in her mind. He's wanting to plant disbelief. He's wanting to get rid of faith, get rid of her trust in God. And and so he says, did God really say that? And she says, well, not that we can't eat of all the trees, but he did say there's this, this one tree. And you remember last two weeks ago that we talked about how God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. But Satan wanted to challenge that. He wanted her to think that, that God was holding something back, that God was selfish, that he was arbitrary, that he really didn't want her to experience what God himself was experiencing, because that's what Lucifer believed. That's the accusation, right? There's an accusation against God and against who God is. So the serpent goes on to say, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Last week, Ron summarized for us an excellent summary of what the Bible tells us about death. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is actually holding something back from you. He doesn't want you to experience what he is. He is selfish and capricious. The whole point is to take away faith from Eve's heart. And I want to submit to you that, that sin took place in Eve before she ever grabbed the fruit from the tree. You see, sin is an absence of faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so the root cause of what led to the action of her taking the fruit was the fact that she no longer trusted that God was self-sacrificing love. And because of that, She reached out and took the fruit and said, God is holding something back from me and I want it for myself. And she chose the path of selfishness. So back in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, we've seen some definitions here now of faith. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So a massive shift has actually been taking place in the past a few decades looking at this final phrase, the faith of Jesus. You know, for a long time, in fact, this phrase is used, uh, Paul uses it a number of times, and this has always been understood as the faith that is placed in Jesus, right? And if you look at some of your modern translations, you look at the New International Version, you look at the ESV, a lot of them will have 
the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. But the reality is here, that, or at least it translates some of the other times that this phrase is used in the New Testament, the faith in Jesus. But the reality is here um, that we aren't as clear on that because all that is here in Greek is the word for faith, which is pistis, and the word for, word for Jesus, which is uh, yesu. So pistis, yesu. These are the, the words that are there. Well, the word for Jesus is in the genitive. Don't worry, you don't have to remember all this. There won't be a quiz on it later, but here's the deal. It's in the genitive, which means that a translator has to decide when they come to this phrase, is this talking about the faith? So, so since this is in the genitive, is this talking about the faith that is of the subject? Who's the subject in this verse? That's a good, good, good idea. Ralph, well, who's the subject in this? You're our English, English uh, specialist. It's those who keep, right? Those who are. It's the saints themselves, as we see earlier on here, but it's those who are keeping. So if it's a subjective genitive, put it this way, it would be the faith of the saints that is in Jesus. And that's one way that you can translate it. And that definitely is important as you read the corpus of Scripture. But if you take it as the genitive, then you realize when you come to this that it is the faith of Jesus. It's the, the faithfulness of Jesus. It's the, the faith and trust that Jesus himself manifests. Manifest. Jesus as, as son of God and Jesus as son of man. As son of man, he manifested perfect trust in God. But we're going to find out that as son of man... He repre- or, uh, son of God, he, he manifested that God has faith in you. Does that sound a little heretical for you? God has faith in you. We tend to think that faith is only something that, that goes one direction. But we're going to find that the reality in the Bible is that no, there is actually a faith that God places in you. Now notice here, it says, here are those who keep. That's the verb in this sentence. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Whose commandments are the commandments? They're God's commandments. Are they, they were written on stone. Did, did you give the commandments? All right, so, so you, as a last day people, are there going to be people who these are their commandments? No, right? So, so we're keeping the commandments that God has given, and we're also keeping the faith of Jesus, the faith that, that resides in Jesus. There's good grammatical evidence here, as well as the theme of Revelation. Think about it this way. If, if we're coming to Revelation, as, as you're getting to the, to the climax of Revelation, as you're coming to the top of that chiasm, and you get to the most important chapters, and then you get to the most important verse, and you get to this phrase, imagine it's like this crescendo of the revelation of Jesus, and as it gets to the top of the crescendo of Jesus, it suddenly says, And here, in the midst of this conflict, here in the midst of all that is going on with the mark of the beast, here are people that have really big faith. I don't know about you. Maybe maybe you have such incredible faith that to hear that, you're like, yeah, that's right. Revelation is about me and my faith and how I'm going to stand in the end and how much endurance I have. But the reality is that it's the revelation of Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah, please. 
I heard one. Okay, thank you, Mom. It's the faith of Jesus. Now, whose faith is it? It's Jesus' faith. Uh, Now, we're going to find that that obviously results in faith and faithfulness in us. But it has to start with the faith of Jesus. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Lift him up, page 221. That same Adventist pioneer said it this way. Christ would never have given his life for the human race if he had not faith in the souls for whom he died. Jesus has faith in you. (laughs) Is that an amazing reality to go out to the world and tell them like, hey, Jesus believes in you. The next atheist you come across when they say, I don't believe in God, will say, the good news is he believes in you. And he believes in what he can do with your life. And he, in him you live and move and breathe. He cares about you. He's been sending the sun and the rain, just like Jesus said. He, he's watching out for you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, gives us a picture of what this, this faith experience is all about. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all, everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This is his really key, key point in all of, of Romans. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's this amazing reality that Paul points out in this this poignant summary of the book of Romans. And he says, it's from faith to faith. And and I don't know, for a long time I read that and I thought, well, he's going to take me from one step of faith in my life to another step of faith in my life. And eventually that'll be a little bit more faith. But I've come to realize something. The reality is that this is saying it's going to come from God's faith and faithfulness to us will be stirred in a reciprocal faith and faithfulness back to God. It's out of his belief in us that we are able to respond with belief. And not everybody's going to respond to that faith. But Romans chapter 3 actually goes on and say, will, does the unfaithfulness of those who didn't receive, does that nullify the faith of God? No, it doesn't. Just because somebody doesn't respond to the faith that he places in them doesn't nullify his faith. So how is that possible? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7 says it this way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes all things. And we could, since, since 1 John 4 verses 8 and 16 says that God is love, then we can say the fact is that God believes all things, and that includes you. God believes in what he has made you to be. God believes in the potential that he has placed inside of you to make a difference in this world. God believes all things. And we find this through salvation history, you know, when God comes walking into the garden, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're running from him. They're hiding from him. They've clothed themselves with their own, uh, trying to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves. They're miserable. And God's come to give them a promise. He's come to express his faith of what is going to take place. He says, I am going to place enmity between that serpent and between you. And it's going to come through your seed. And so you find that Adam and Eve, and then Abel and whatever his wife's name were, and, and 
line, person by person, in this line of people, they're looking to the next generation saying, is this the seed? Is this the faithful one? Is this the one who will finally keep covenant in such a way that, that the, the enmity will be broken between us and the serpent? And then you get to the story of Abraham. And the story of Abraham, he's promised that he's going to be a father of many nations. But the one thing he can't do is have kids, at least not with the one wife that he's supposed to have kids with, and that's Sarah. And the story of Abraham is really the hinge point of the entire Bible. From there on, we're going to be learning mainly the history of Israel because it's all leading up to the faithful one, the Messiah who's coming to rescue us. So describing this, Paul says this about Abraham in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Was Abraham a father of many nations at this time? Not yet. He hadn't actually had kids, but God looked at him and said, I have made you the father of many nations. He's speaking faith. He said, promise after promise, he said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to all nations. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul's using creation language to say, you know, God can speak and light comes. God can speak and his word always accomplishes what he sends it for. So when God says you are a father of many nations, it's going to happen if you don't block the way. And so notice what goes on to say, verse 18. Oh, sorry, we're going to jump down to verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. This is from faith to faith. From the promise that was given, he reacted in his own faith, right? So he was given a promise by God, and he didn't disbelieve the promise, but was strengthened in faith through that promise, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he, being God, had promised, he was also able to perform. We'll come to trust his promises. We'll come to believe that he'll perform what he's promised when we realize the faith that he has and what he can do in our lives. Verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. If you're longing for righteousness, for purity of heart, you're longing for your life to be remolded back into the image of God, to receive the seal of God, which is his loving character, believe. When when the disciples came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and they came to him and they were so impressed by what he did with multiplying the bread and they said, tell us what we can do to work the works of God. Jesus' response was, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. And believe, believe, believe. Our faithfulness is only a response to his faithfulness. Our faith is only a response to his faith. We love because he first loved us. And love believes all things. And we also only believe because he first believed in us. Not because we have intrinsic value in ourselves, besides the fact that God himself created you. And he has an incredible purpose for you. And he knows what he can do with your life. It's an incredible reality. But hang on. This flat earth thing, I think it has some merit to it. In fact, so here is actually a a depiction of what the flat earth looks like. And you know the whole thing of landing on the moon, they kind of faked the flag flying, and there's not really this moon that's orbiting around the earth. And 
Flat Earth, there's whole websites dedicated to this. There's people who, who genuinely believe this stuff. And, and you might be thinking, you know, Pastor Zach, the way that you're talking about how important Jesus' faith is and God's faith is, well, well, that's going to diminish the ability to really have faith in God. This is dangerous what you're saying to me. Well, watch what happens to the sun when the sun is not the center. You see, the flat earth model says it's like this. <laughs> Do you see that? That's the sun and the moon in the flat earth model. The sun is no longer this blazing ball of fire that is 93 million miles away, that is so much more massive than the earth. It's about 32 miles in diameter, the first guy who, who, who described how it goes around. And then it's just like a little tiny spotlight that's just shining on a little part of the earth. And it's just giving us just a little glimmer of, of what uh, light is like. And it's, it's just this cute little, little ball up in the sky that, that rotates around us. That's the reality of, of how often we rely upon our faith, our faithfulness. And it's not popular to come and share with people the fact that you're not so big. The reality is that we need a Copernican shift, but it's not something that people are excited to hear. It got John thrown to the Isle of Patmos. It got Galileo put in prison in his, his house uh, locked up in his house for life to say the sun was at the center. And whenever we reveal Jesus, we can expect that people aren't going to want to hear about the self-sacrificing love. You need to tell us something that is a little more serious, something that, that'll, you need to tell us what's going on in the world. Go, go preach about what's in the headlines instead of about Jesus. But the reality is, Jesus has to be the center of it all. It has to be about the faith of Jesus. If it is not about the faith of Jesus, if it is not about Jesus' faithfulness, then we're missing the entire point. Remember that we talked about two weeks ago, uh, the reality is that here we are as a tiny little ball in this is our solar system, what we imagine in the Milky Way. And that Milky Way, uh, we are orbiting in the Milky Way at about 500,000 miles per hour. Day in and day out, we are going on a massive journey. The reality is that knowing the faithfulness of Jesus, relying upon his faithful love in our lives, alone will stir in us the good works that are so incredibly necessary. I don't have this verse here, but Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 says that it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that avails anything, but it is faith that works by love. It's faith that is energized, the word in Greek is, by love. Faith is motivated by love. It takes love in order to have the faith that we desperately need for the times that we're living in. So where does faith come from? Yeah, we can talk on and on about faith, and this is great and all, but how do I practically walk away with faith? Well, the Bible's really clear on that too. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? By the word of God. There's a reason that we spend so much time talking about the Bible. There's a reason that we encourage spending time in the Bible. There's a reason that every single year I, I read through the Bible. I wake up every morning as early as possible before my girls so that I can take some time to read the Bible. Because the reality is, 
that the Bible, as it said a few verses before this, is the word of faith which we preach. It's, it's the story of the faith of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus' faithfulness. From Genesis to Revelation, it reveals to us that we have an incredible Savior who is out to do everything possible to save us. And he's done it in the life of Abraham. He's done it in the life of Joseph. He's done it in the life of David. He's done it in the life of Daniel. He did it time and time again. And he'll do it for you. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus. And the reality is, as I allow... That faith that God has in this word to saturate my own heart, it will stir faith in me. It will enable me to have faith. Because here's the thing about the Bible. Every command and promise in the Bible expresses God's faith. When God promises something, that's a little easier to see. When he says, you shall be a blessing, you will be the father of nations. It's obvious that that is an expression of faith. But how about God's commands? Are God's commands also statements of faith? Is that the reality of what God's commands are all about? I want you to think about this. With with you that have had children, how many of you have ever commanded your child to take out the trash? I mean, it could have been a really polite command. Like, would you please take out the trash? But you are giving them instructions to take out the trash. How many of you ever commanded your child to wash the dishes? Gave them instructions to uh, clean the house. How many of you ever gave instructions to your child to fly to the moon and back? Okay, I don't see any hands raised for that. Why didn't you give them the instruction to fly? They don't have the capacity for that, and you don't have the capacity to instill that in them. So I'm not going to tell my sweet little girls, you need to fly. Here's the deal. God's commands are powerful in that they enable us to do exactly what he's commanded us to do. His word has power to stir in us the reality that is described in his word. His words, his, it, both, both his promises and his commands in the Bible, are expressing God's faith towards us. Abraham Heschel, a uh, Jewish rabbi who is an amazing scholar on the Old Testament, in his book, Man is Not Alone, says it this way, faith is real only when it is not one-sided but reciprocal. Now remember, he's looking at the Hebrew concept. He doesn't even believe in Jesus, but this is what he came to a realization of. Faith is real only when it is not one-sided but reciprocal. Man can rely on God if God can rely on man. We may trust in him because he trusts in us. To have faith means to justify God's faith in man. It is as essential that God believe in man as that man should believe in God. It has to be initiated in God in order for us to have a response of faith. Thus, faith is an awareness of divine mutuality and companionship, a form of communion between God and Man, it's beautiful, isn't it? And that word, First John, John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That, that word, that promise, that story of salvation became human flesh and bones and took on our nature here on this humble, tiny little planet that is not the center even of our own little solar system. And as Jesus did that, Notice what education, page 80, describes about what his life was like. 
It says, in every human being, Jesus discerned infinite possibilities. Do I look at other human beings that way? I need to bring the faith of Jesus into my own home, into my community, into everywhere I go. Jesus saw infinite possibilities in every person. He saw men as they might be, transfigured by his grace in the beauty of the Lord our God. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you want to follow a person like that? Looking upon them with hope, he inspired hope. Meeting them with confidence, he inspired trust. Revealing in himself man's true ideal, he awakened for its attainment both desire and faith. He expressed confidence and trust in them, and the response was confidence and trust back towards Jesus. In his presence, souls despised and fallen realized that they still were men, and they longed to prove themselves worthy of his regard. They realized that they still had value, and they longed to live up to the faith that he had placed in them, the love that he had placed in them. For in many a heart that seemed dead to all things holy were awakened new impulses. To many a despairing one, there opened the possibility of a new life. You see, Satan's accusation of God took away humanity's ability to have faith and love. But the reality is, Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with what? With faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Where are the faith and the love? They're located in Christ Jesus. This beautiful Savior who walked among us, who saw infinite potential in every single human being. So I imagine that day. I imagine that day as, as Jesus was there teaching in the temple, trying to, to instill hope, trying to, to let people know that they could be raised out of the life that they were living, trying to help them to see what he was inviting them to, trying to show the faith that he had in them. When suddenly, men brought to him a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they said to Jesus, now Moses and the law commanded us that, that, that one like this should be stoned. But what do you say? And, and I imagine that, that one of them came with some rocks with him. He said, here, Jesus, disciples, you need some of these rocks? Right? Moses in the law and the prophet said, she should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? You know, there's another word in the Bible. Condemnation. Condemnation, I believe, is, is the opposite of faith. Because if somebody has been condemned, there's no longer hope. There's no longer a future for them. Condemnation sees no uh, ability for a future in that person. It's a complete lack of faith. So what do you say, Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't respond right away. At first, he's just down writing. He bends down and he begins writing in the dust. They're frustrated by that. Verse 7 continues. So they continued asking him, we've got these rocks here, Jesus. He raised himself. And so they continued asking him, what are we going to do with these, Jesus? And so Jesus raised himself up. And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. And if you study the law of the Torah, Jesus it's going right along with all that Moses had instructed about situations like this. 
He wasn't violating the law. He was bringing them to a realization of what it's all about because where was the husband in the situation? The husband was the one who should have come and accused. And where was the other person who was caught in the act? They had to catch the person in the act. And, and all of these things were, were a farce. But they just wanted to condemn. And all too often, I'm ready to throw stones. All too often, I'm ready to condemn people, to think that there's no hope. Did you hear what they said? Do you, do you know the type of person they are? Do you know the choices that they've made in their life? Do you know? I'm ready to throw some rocks at him. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Here's the thing. In this story, we're going to find out that... that Jesus is the friend of sinners, but he is not the friend of sin. And these guys love their sin. They're convicted by their conscience, and they went out one by one. Imagine you begin to hear rocks dropping, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst you imagine the thoughts that are racing through this woman's mind? Who is this guy? What is he going to do to me? What's going to happen to me now? He didn't leave. What's next? And she's just waiting for, for somebody to throw the first rock. When Jesus raised up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Do you know that there's only one accuser of the brethren in the Bible, and that is Satan? And we have to be careful that we don't mimic his behaviors. I have to be careful that I don't mimic his behaviors and begin to point the finger and to begin to condemn and to say, this person is this way and they can't change. But Jesus says, where are your accusers? The ones who wanted to condemn you. Has no one condemned you? Now notice, goes on to say in verse 11, imagine her there Wondering, what is Jesus going to say next? What's going to come next? Because I know that I deserve this. I know that I've done wrong. I know my sin. And it's evident to Jesus as well as everybody else. But Jesus goes on this. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now notice, it doesn't say that, that first the woman had faith stirring inside of her, and then Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Who's the one expressing faith? Who's the one giving justification in the situation? Who's the one saying that there is no condemnation for you in my presence? There is no condemnation in Christ. Jesus. He's saying, neither do I condemn you. He lifts the weight of the guilt and shame off of her. Because that's the only way that you could ever love again. That's the only way that you could ever keep the commandments again. And then what does he do? He expresses faith. He says, go and sin no more. (laughs) He expresses faith in who she can become, that she can go out and love again. She can go out and be faithful to her husband. She can go out and live a relationally relationally faithful life. She can live with self-sacrificing love. Go And sin no more. That's the same invitation that Jesus gives to you and I today. And first, we've got to realize that there is no condemnation. Do you know that? You are not under condemnation today. 
I need to hear another hallelujah, please. (laughs) There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the only path to get rid of the thing that will be condemned in the end. And that thing is a hateful thing. It is sin, which is an absence of faith and an absence of love. We desperately need to experience this in our own lives. And you know, I love how the book Desire of Ages describes that she became one of his most devoted and loving followers. And I believe that this was probably Mary Magdalene, who later we find determined to sit at the feet of Jesus, who the Gospels describes as demons were actually cast out of her seven different times. Jesus had to continue to pour his faith into her life, to continue to pick her up, to continue to believe in her, to continue to be there for her. But then she's the one at the cross And she's the first one at the tomb early in the morning. She can't wait to get to Jesus because Jesus has set her free. If your relationship with Jesus is not on fire right now, could it be that you haven't accepted his freedom from condemnation? And she is the one, as Ron talked about last week, that as Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, he's on his way to the throne of the universe to make sure that all is well in the great controversy and what has just taken place. He stops by to see Mary on the way. They had such an incredibly close relationship because she had experienced no condemnation in Christ. And now, friends, the love of Christ compels us because we judge it this way, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, God's love should stir in us the same type of love. Therefore, from now on, notice what Paul goes on to say, we regard no one according to the what? The flesh. You see see what this is saying? It's saying, no longer do I see bums on the street. No longer do I see alcoholics. No longer do I see critical people. No longer do I see prostitutes. No longer do I see uh, that crazy neighbor as a hopeless case. I don't look at people according to the flesh anymore. I look at them according to what they can become in Christ and based upon the faith that Jesus has, based upon his faithfulness. This is what we so desperately need. So I want to invite you um, to read together with me this uh, final, final quote. Actually, before we get to that, I'll tell you a little story. So this church had an incredible Pathfinder Club um, back about 25 years ago or something like that. And I was also in Pathfinders over in the mountains above Fresno. And this is me in my first bike-a-thon, I think it was. And I was riding my bike, and I heard about the fact that you could go out and you could ride your bike. And, and I went out and tried to ride 100 miles because you get a special patch for that. Well, it didn't work out so well. I didn't end up riding that far. But you know something happened. A member of this church, Nathan Heiss, he told me something after that first bike-a-thon, and, and there were other events that happened that helped me in this, but he told me something. He said, you can ride far enough to get the trophy. That year, Nathan Heiss actually got the trophy. But I said, I said really? Uh, you think I could do that? I, I could ride far enough to get the trophy? He said, yeah. He said, you know those guys that ride past us really fast? Well, actually, every six laps, they stop and they get a snow cone and they hang out for a long time. So you don't need... I said, no way. I thought, that, I thought that everybody else had it together. I thought that they were riding so much further. I thought that I had no potential whatsoever. But he said, you can do it. You can ride that far. The next year, I rode 137 miles. Got this silly little trophy that no longer is in my house, but 
Somebody believed in me. It made a difference. It made me believe that there was hope, that there was potential, that I could do something more than I thought I could. How much better when the God of the universe looks at you and says, here's what I'm inviting you to. Here's what I believe that I can make out of your life. We need to know that God has faith in us. Now, check this out. Okay, I'm going to have you read this with me because we're at that point where we begin to, to grapple with being able to pay attention. So I'm going to have you read this with me, but it, it's practical, agita- uh, practical application of this principle to teachers. Now, there's another place where it's written specifically for medical doctors dealing with those who are in really poor health or in addictions. But basically, how do we bring the faith of Jesus into our home life, into our schools, into our hospital, wherever we are. Notice this. Read it with me. We live in a hard, unfeeling, uncharitable world. Satan and his confederacy are applying every art to seduce the souls for whom Christ has given his precious life. Is that true? Does the world become hard and, and uh, unfeeling? You know, I recently just saw, I was going to post a picture for you of it, but I forgot. A candidate who now has these t-shirts that he's selling, a political candidate, that say, enough on the front. And then on the back it says, do unto them as they have done unto us. Sounds a little bit like something I heard back in Genesis chapter 5. But anyway, or 6, let's keep going. Right? So we live in a hard and unfeeling, uncharitable world. Everyone who loves God in sincerity and truth will love the souls for whom Christ has died. Now notice this. Read this with me. If we wish to do good to souls, our success with those souls will be in proportion to their belief in, our belief in, and appreciation of them. Did you catch that? This is mind-blowing. This changes everything. This is like the apex of the Christian life. This is how you live to make a difference in lives around you. As you trust in the faithfulness of Jesus and his faith stirs faith in you, you suddenly come to the place where you extend faith into the lives of people that are unworthy around you. Your success with souls will be in proportion to their belief in, your belief in and appreciation of them. You wonder why people don't want what you have? Have you expressed belief in and appreciation for them? Your success with pulling them out of addictions will be in proportion to that. You know, this is really challenging to me. I'm dealing right now with a guy down in Southern California that I've loved dearly, who I've been friends with for 15 years, and he keeps slipping back into addiction. I have to tell him, look, God believes in you. I see potential in what God wants to make of you. And I'm realizing that he desperately needs this. I desperately need this. You desperately need this to know that there is hope that there is potential in your life. Now it goes on to say, respect shown to the struggling human soul is the sure means through Christ Jesus of the restoration of the self-respect that man has lost. Our advancing ideas of what he may become is a help we cannot ourselves fully appreciate. Did you know that? Your advancing ideas of what he may become are a help that you cannot fully appreciate. We have need of the rich grace of God every hour. Then we will have a rich, practical experience. For God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God. Give love to them that need it most, the most unfortunate. Those who have the most disagreeable temperaments need our love, our tenderness, our compassion. Friends, I'm, I'm still reading this myself because I need to grasp this. Those who are the most disagreeable, those who are the most difficult, I need the most compassion for, the most tenderness. Those who try our patience need most love. The rough, stubborn, sullen dispositions are the ones who need help the most. 
Notice, how can they be helped? Only by the love practiced in dealing with them, which Christ revealed to fallen man. Notice how it goes on to say. Read this with me. Treat some characters as you think they richly deserve, and you will cut off from them the last thread of hope. Spoil your influence and ruin the soul. Will it pay? No. I say a hundred times no. We can treat people the way we think that they deserve. Oh, you're enabling them if you treat them that way. If you, if you show up for them, you're enabling them. Really? Maybe what they actually need is for somebody to believe in who they can become. Bind these souls who need all the help it's possible for you to give them close to a loving, sympathizing, pitying heart overflowing with Christ-like love, and you will save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Read this last sentence with me. Had we not better try the love process. Friends, let's try it. You want to try the love process? You want to try a Copernican shift to go from viewing yourself at the center, for viewing your rights as being at the center, to realizing that the sun is at the center of it all, that Jesus is absolutely everything, and that he's taking us on incredible journey that we could not go on if we did not have the faith of Jesus. I want to just invite you to kneel as we close in prayer. Just, just kneel before God and just as a sign of your dependence upon him, your, your recognition that you need him. And if you're unable to kneel, I totally understand that, that that's not possible for everybody. But as you kneel, I just want you to to contemplate what is it that God is calling you to do as a result of your understanding of his faith towards you. Maybe you've never fully accepted this for yourself. We're having a baptism on December 11, and maybe you didn't realize that when you were baptized, baptism is about Jesus' death, Jesus' life, and Jesus' resurrection. You thought it was about you. Like a pastor I heard recently said, you don't need to be rebaptized. You were only doing swimming lessons with your pastor. You need to be baptized. Maybe some of you have never taken that step before. You need to accept Jesus' faithfulness to you today. To go into the, the waters as a symbol that you're accepting his death and resurrection on your behalf. Maybe some of us have made that choice long ago and we felt like we understood the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. But you need to extend it to your circle, to your home life, to the people around you. Maybe some of us just need a more beautiful picture of what the gospel is all about. Whatever it might be for you, I just invite you to take a moment in silence, just between you and Jesus, Invite him to reveal himself to you and to give you clarity on how to move forward practically from here. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that it's about your faithfulness. Lord, help me to come to the Bible recognizing that it will stir faith in me if I recognize the whispers of divine faith, of divine love throughout its pages. Father, I pray that your commitment to us, your undying love for us, would compel us to live in love towards others, to treat the world the way that you have treated it, to lay down our lives for those who are undeserving. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.